This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I've got a uh, a brand new story for you tonight from the Hardy Boys, which just entered the public domain this year. I think you're really going to like falling asleep to this. And before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to listen to an ad-free version of the show. So... This week's wonderful new patrons, Reading and Waiting, Brenda DeBruyne, Matthew, Chris Osborne, Brian Dudley, Allie Love, Caitlin Richardson, Comer 2K, Alexandra Winston, Casey Sturzenegger, Grace S., Annette Colsrud, Nathan New and Joanna Going. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. Thank you. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, these are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon, where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to listen to an ad-free version of the show or hear uh, poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. No matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. If you're interested in the ad-free version of the show, 
right at the top of this feed on Spotify, you'll see a little banner, the blue sleepy logo that you can click on to unlock uh, tons of episodes without ads. Uh, it's really easy. And uh, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you donate. Otherwise, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, I'm pretty excited to be reading this story tonight because it's uh, obviously infamous. I'm sure you recognize the series. Um, we're going to be reading The Hardy Boys. And uh, a handful of these books uh, from the Hardy Boys series just entered the public domain this year, which is really, really nice. And uh, tonight, I'm going to be reading The Shore Road Mystery. The dialogue in this is really nice and simple and also engaging, kind of silly. Um, so I think it's really nice to kind of uh, get lost in and doze off to. After reading this, I can definitely see more mystery stories like the Hardy Boys and Agatha Christie coming up in the beginning of this year. So, if you liked hearing the Hardy Boys, uh, let me know in the comments on Spotify because I'd love to know if you uh, actually like hearing these stories to fall asleep. Well, without further ado, Tonight, The Hardy Boys, number six, The Shore Road Mystery, by Franklin W. Dixon. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Shore Road Mystery Chapter 1 Pursue Stolen at Dune Beach, car is swift line cream sedan, believed heading south on Shore Road. Alert all cars. Repeat. The bulletin had just come over the police band on Frank Hardy's motorcycle radio. He and his brother Joe Side by side on their dark gray machines were roaring northward along Shore Road to join school friends for a swim. Dune Beach, Frank shouted, and the boys skidded to a halt on a sand shoulder. The car thief might pass them at any moment. Let's stop him, Joe proposed. The boys waited, scanning a deserted fishing pier on their right. Frank was 18, tall and dark hair. Joe, a year younger, was blonde. Both were excellent amateur detectives. Joe, do you realize this makes five car thefts in one week along Shore Road? The Hardys steered their motorcycles to the land side of Shore Road and faced them south, ready to move out quickly. Several cars whizzed by, heading north. Then two police cars screamed past in the other direction. After five more minutes had gone by, Frank frowned. It looks as if we're not going to nab any thieves today. Joe said, let's hope the police are on the right track. But subsequent bulletins indicated another successful getaway by the car thieves. The Hardys cycled to Dune Beach to learn what they could. Here the boys found several state troopers taking down information from the elderly man whose car had been stolen. It was gone when I came up from the beach, he said. Presently the boys headed south for their swim. I don't understand this, Joe remarked. The stolen car couldn't just vanish into thin air. 
The police seemed just as puzzled, Frank observed. Unfortunately, there were no witnesses. Did you notice that the tires of two nearby cars had been punctured? The thief must have done that to avoid pursuit. The brothers eased their motorcycles toward a wooden rack behind Oceanside's bathing pavilion. Joe swung off his vehicle and unstrapped his towel roll. Maybe a good swim will sharpen our wits. Right, said Frank as they headed for the bathhouse. Being the sons of Bayport's famous detective, Fenton Hardy, the boys were not easily deterred by initial disappointments in pursuing criminals. Although still high school students, they had helped their father on many cases and had used their sleuthing prowess in solving several mysteries. Joe, though impetuous, was quick-witted and dependable. Frank, more serious-minded, was inclined to think out a situation before taking action. They worked well together. After the Hardys had changed into swimming trunks and Bayport sweatshirts, they trotted across the hot white sand to the roped-off bathing area. Frank, Joe, called their waiting friends. Greetings were exchanged as Phil Cohen and Tony Prito, pals of the Hardys, bounded over from behind the lifeguard's green chair. Phil was a quiet, intelligent boy with sandy hair. Tony, olive-complexioned and lively, owned a motorboat and had shared many adventures with the Hardys out on Barnett Bay. We're sorry, Frank apologized, but we were delayed by a car thief. He recounted the story. Another one, Tony shook his head. Is your dad on the case? Joe slipped off his sweatshirt. No, not yet. He's going out of town today. All the police in the area are, though. Maybe there'll be a break in the mystery soon. Phil tilted his head. If you fellows get on the job, there will be, he grinned, for better or worse. Thanks, said Joe then turned and raced for the water. Frank followed. Whoa there. From behind a pair of sunglasses appeared the tan, smiling face of blonde lifeguard Biff Hooper. The Hardys greeted Biff and looked around the beach. There were not many bathers in evidence. Where is everybody today? Frank asked. I think the car theft is keeping folks away, Biff answered been like this for a week. Have any of the rest of our crowd been here today? Joe put in. I haven't seen Iola all day, Biff teased. The others laughed, and Joe joined in. Bashful with girls, he was used to being teased about his attachment to Chet Morton's sister. Say, where's Chet? Frank asked. Chet? I haven't seen him here this week, Biff replied, but I did hear he's been spending some time at Bayport Museum. It must be connected with food, Tony grinned. Their stout friend loved to eat. Frank and Joe went swimming. An hour later they saw Biff beckoning to them from shore. Message for you fellows, he shouted. They swam quickly to the beach. Biff exclaimed, a phone message was just brought to me. Jerry finally got his new car. He's at Beach Grove. Why don't you Hardys run over later and take a look at it? Great. Jerry Gilroy, a fellow student, had long spoken of buying a handsome car for which he had been saving earnings from summer and after school jobs. Before leaving, Frank and Joe decided to stroll along the beach toward a black stone jetty in the distance. Suddenly, they came upon a dead bat in the sand. Funny, said Joe. Wonder how we got here. The boys walked on to the end of the jetty and scanned the horizon. Beyond the bathing area, a black fishing boat cruised by slowly. Moments later, the Hardys recognized a smaller green and white bow, which belonged to their friend, Jack Dodd, 
They waved to him. Jack seemed about to wave back when they saw him lurch forward sharply and drop below in his bow. Then he stood up and signaled frantically. Something's wrong, Joe gasped. Look, the bow's beginning to list. The Hardys dived off the jetty and swam swiftly out to meet the craft as Jack headed it toward the rock promontory. In moments, they had climbed into the boat. Frank, Joe, quick, in there. Jack pointed to the small forward compartment as he maneuvered the boat closer to the jetty. Below, the Hardys found themselves standing in an inch of churning water. Near the left bulkhead, Jack called down, cutting the motor. Frank had already spotted a small, bubbling fount and covered it with his foot. Joe ripped a towel off a hook, and together they stanched a leak until some wood sealer was found in the paint locker. By the time Joe and Jack were mooring the boat to the jetty, Frank had tightly plugged the leak. I guess I owe you fellows my boat, Jack smiled gratefully as the three bailed most of the water out of the compartment. Jack Dodd was a likable, dark-haired youth. He and his father, a widower and respected Bayport citizen, worked a farm on Shore Road. The exercise did us good and in. Joe laughed and jumped onto the jetty. How did it happen, Jack? Did he strike a rock? Jack shook his head worriedly. Some other object struck my boat underneath. Frank's face showed astonishment. It sure seemed that way. I was moving along great until I heard a scraping noise and then the gush of water. I've never hit any rocks around here before. But who would deliberately? Joe was puzzled. You've got me, Jack shrugged. I've run into some cranks along the coast, but never any who seemed likely to do this sort of thing. A gleam came into Jack's eye. Say, how would you fellows like to help Dad and me solve a mystery? A mystery? Yes, Jack continued, brightening. My uncle, an astronomy professor at Cheston College, is coming up from Greenville tomorrow to assist us but we need a couple of good local detectives. He grinned at the Hardys. The mystery concerns a geographical puzzle that's been puzzling our family for three centuries. The Hardys whistle. You bet we'll help. Jack promised to give them the details the following day. He cast off, waving goodbye. After Frank and Joe had changed into their sport clothes, they returned to the motorcycles and headed north on the shore road, eager to see Jerry's new car. As they neared Beach Grove Point, they saw a boy running toward them. It's Jerry, Frank exclaimed. The Hardys screeched to a halt as their wiry, red-cheeked friend flagged them down. His hair was tussled and his eyes wide with worry. The car. My new car, he gasped. It's just been stolen. Sky blue, cavalier hardtop. Did it pass you heading south? The brothers shook their heads. Then it must have gone north, Jerry declared. We'll chase it, Joe offered. The Hardys gunned their motors and swept northward. Crouching low, they whipped up an incline beneath a rock overhang. There it is, Frank shouted. Several hundred yards ahead, a light blue hardtop sped around a long curve in the highway. When the car came into view again, the gap between it and the boys had widened. The Hardys accelerated and streaked ahead through an unbroken stretch of farm country. We're gaining on him, Joe yelled. He had no sooner said this when Frank saw something that made him exclaim in dismay. A huge, bright red produce truck pulled out of the dirt road directly ahead 
entirely blocking off the highway. It stood still. Joe, look out, Frank shouted, desperately breaking down from top speed. But it was too late. Tires smoking, the motorcycles screeched into a skid off the road. Chapter 2. Police Tip-Off Swerving to avoid a wooden fence, the Hardys windmilled their motorcycles violently. Both boys flew off as the machines came to a stop in a cloud of dust. Dazed, Frank pulled himself up and limped over to Joe. You okay? Frank asked with concern. His brother had a bruised forehead and had skinned his left arm. Joe seemed stunned but managed a weak smile. I just hope our cycles came out of it as lucky as we have. The radio's banged up, Frank said. Up ahead, the door of the produce truck slammed. A short, plump man with yellowish-white hair approached the Hardys. From his floppy straw hat, denims, and mud-stained shoes, the boys concluded that he was a farmer. You fellas all right? he asked. Mighty sorry about that spill. Didn't see it coming. My chuck horn don't work nowadays. Hope he wasn't in no hurry. We were after somebody, but it's too late to catch him now, said Frank. May we use your phone? Ain't got one, the man replied. As he drove off, the Hardys righted their motorcycles. To their relief, both machines were operable. We'd better get back to Beach Grow, said Frank, and the boys chugged off. They found that Jerry had already phoned the police. There were no noticeable footprints or other clues where he had left his car. I sure hate to lose that bus, Jerry said, although the car was a year old. It was a good one, and an expensive model, too. Was your car locked? Joe asked their friend. Yes, but the thief managed to get it open. After the police arrived, Frank and Joe said that they must leave. Jetty thanked the voice for their effort. I'll let you know what happens, he promised. In a short time, the brothers reached the pleasant, tree-shaded hardy home, which stood at the corner of Elm and High Streets. After dusting off their motorcycles, the boys entered the back door and tiptoed through the fragrant kitchen. I'm ready to put away a good meal, Frank remarked. Smudged, unkept, and with a few bleeding cuts, they hoped to wash before alarming their mother or peppery Aunt Gertrude. Their father's unmarried sister was a frequent visitor. They had no sooner started up the stairs when Miss Hardy came from the living room and called to them. Supper is almost ready. In the moment of silence that followed, there was a disapproving gasp. Frank and Joe, look at yourselves. Dust and mud and dirt and... The tall, angular woman began. That supper sure smells good, Auntie, Joe said, smiling. Joe Hardy, don't you change the subject, she continued. A fine spectacle you are, and tracking dirt all over your mother's vacuum carpet. Suddenly, Aunt Gertrude saw Joe's skinned arm and bruised forehead. Joe, you're cut. And Frank, why are you limping? Oh my goodness. What happened? Her nephews could not repress smiles. They soon dispelled her concern without mentioning the details of their accident on Shore Road. The brothers loved their aunt and knew that beneath her huffish way she held great affection for them. Well, maybe you didn't track the carpet too badly, she said. But Joe... You better put some antiseptic on that ugly scratch. 
Frank Hardy, be careful going up those steps. Later, the boys joined the family at dinner. Their mother was a sweet-faced, quiet woman. Mr. Hardy was tall and distinguished-looking. After hearing the details of the day's happenings, the detective announced that he was leaving for New York on business. He left the table before dessert was served and hurried upstairs. Presently, he reappeared, set a suitcase in the hall, and prepared to say goodbye in the dining room. A big case, Dad? Frank asked him. Not big enough, son, the detective grinned. After that last shirt was packed, I had to stand on the case to get it shut. The pun brought pretended groans from his sons. Their father went on. I'll be in New York City, perhaps for several weeks. Authorities there have asked me to work on some arms smuggling case. The smugglers are apparently supplying American criminals with foreign-made lethal weapons. Got any leads, Dad? Not yet. The government is greatly concerned over their distribution. Mr. Hardy kissed his wife and sister goodbye. Then Frank and Joe accompanied their father outside to wait for his taxi to the airport. Too bad about Jerry's car, the detective said. Chief Collard asked my help on the theft case. Unfortunately, I had already accepted the New York assignment. Do you mind if we have a try at the Shore Road Mystery Den? Frank asked hopefully. It sounds like quite a challenge, even for my sons, he smiled. But I think the police could use any help available. Take care of yourselves and keep in touch. By the way, put my car in the garage before you go to bed. It's in the driveway. Sure thing, Dad, said Frank. Back at the table, the brothers discussed the day's events with the women. I wonder why Jerry's stolen car was headed north, said Frank. The other shore road thieves always turned south. Just then, they heard a familiar voice from the kitchen door. Hi, chat. Long time no see, called Frank. Stout, good-natured Chet Morton appeared, eating a piece of celery he had picked up from the kitchen table. Chet's visits to the Hardy household at mealtimes were not a rarity. He greeted Mrs. Hardy and Aunt Gertrude, and then said, Hi, fellows. Chet dropped into Mr. Hardy's vacant chair. Sorry I couldn't meet you fellows at the beach today, but I've been kind of busy with my work. Your work, Joe repeated. Work was not one of Chet's strong assets. He reached for an olive, and Mrs. Hardy said, How about some dinner? I'll get you a plate. Not tonight. Thanks, Mrs. Hardy. Aunt Gertrude raised her eyebrows. Seldom did the stout boy turn down an offer of food. Frank and Joe hid smiles behind their napkins. Finally, Frank urged, Come on, Chet. Something's in the air. It's not like you two. Joe was not paying attention. He interrupted to say, Listen, I just heard a noise from the driveway. It sounded like a door of Dad's car being shut. The three boys rushed out to the back porch. Look, cried Joe. A hulking figure was getting into Mr. Hardy's sedan. Another man was already in the car. Stop, Frank ordered. Tearing down the steps, the boys ran across the lawn. The men jumped out and dashed down the driveway to the street. In an instant, they were picked up by a waiting car, which roared away. The boys gave chase, but to no avail. 
Identification was impossible because the driver had put out the lights and the license number could not be seen. Pretty daring thieves, Chet commented. The boys hurried back to Mr. Hardy's automobile. Finding no damage, Frank drove it into the garage and locked the door. Those guys sure had a nerve trying to steal a detective's car, Chet remarked as they re-entered the house. Any special reason, do you suppose? They probably didn't know Dad's away, said Frank, and thought this would handicap him if he should be working on the car thefts. This may have been our first look at some of the Shore Road gang, Frank concluded. After reporting the attempted theft of the police, the boys went to the living room, where Chet proceeded to explain his latest project. I'm studying dietary survival. He took a book from a pocket and tapped the cover. Chet brought a carrot from another pocket and bit loudly into it before tossing the book to Joe. Its title was Vegetable Survival in the Wilderness. Sounds interesting, Chet, he said. But what brought this on? You've always been the biggest eater in Bayport High. Common sense, Chet intoned. You see, we live in a dangerous world, never knowing where our next meal may come from. So, I figured to learn a little botany in case I'm ever marooned on a jungle island or too far from a hot dog stand. In other words, herbivorous survival. Herb, Frank stared. Plant eating, for you layman, Chet said, nibbling a second carrot. I've decided to live on vegetables and fruit between visits to the museum and library to study. And how long is this going to go on, Chester Morton, demanded Aunt Gertrude as she came in. No more chocolate fudge cake, ever? Chet shifted in his chair and swallowed. I haven't worked out the details yet, Miss Hardy. It depends upon my uh, further research. Frank grinned as his aunt shook her head in puzzlement and left the room. Well, we sure wish you luck, Chet, he said. Sounds pretty austere to me. I'll make it, Chet declared. Tell me about your swim. The Hardys told their friend of all the adventures on Shore Road that afternoon, of their plans to help Jack Dodd, and of the theft of Jerry's new car. Chet's eyes bugged out. Wow, I feel sorry for Jerry. I hope the police catch those thieves. Later, as the boys were listening to a television newscast, the speaker said the police had not yet apprehended the thieves. Sure is a tough mystery, Chet remarked. Frank suggested they all look at a map of Shore Road area. Maybe we can figure out where the cars disappear too. Just then the telephone rang. Joe took the call, then rushed back to the others. That was Jack, he exclaimed. He sounded upset and wants us out at the farm right away. Suspecting a sudden development in Jack's secret mystery, the three boys piled into Chet's green jalopy and headed out to Shore Road. As they pulled into the dirt lane to the Dodd farmhouse, they saw the rotating red lights of police cars in front of the house. Something has happened, Joe exclaimed. Officers and excited reporters were assembled near the front of the big porch, while three patrolmen stood by an empty car near the back of the house. The hum of car engines filled the night air. After parking, the Hardys and Chet found Mr. Dodd and Jack standing next to a state trooper at the side of the building. The thin, well-dressed farmer who had a slight mustache looked pale and worn. Jack's hands were clenched. The Hardys and Chet, Mr. Dodd exclaimed, 
forcing a smile as the boys rushed up to them. What has happened? Frank asked immediately. Jack hung his head and pointed to an unoccupied automobile. We've been accused of stealing that car. Stealing? Yes, Mr. Dodd continued grimly. Jack had just discovered this car on our property tonight when all these officers began to arrive, apparently having received a tip-off over the phone that we were the shore road thieves. A husky, uniformed man, Chief Ezra Calling, approached the group and greeted the Hardys. Mr. Dodd tried to recall the whereabouts of himself and his son on the day that the car was reported stolen. Jack added, We couldn't have stolen the car on that day, sir. Both Dad and I were. At that moment, his attention was diverted by an approaching officer. In his hand, he carried a fishing pole. Is this your rod, son? He asked. Jack stared in surprise. Yes, but... Then what was it doing in the trunk of the stolen car? The officer demanded. Chapter 3 A Pilgrim Mystery My fishing pole in the stolen car, Jack repeated in disbelief. It's been missing from my boat since yesterday. Chief Colley examined the rod, then frowned. Personally, I'm inclined to believe you, Jack, but I'm afraid you and your father will have to come to headquarters. We particularly want to check the fingerprints on the car. Fingerprints, Joe queried. Mr. Dodd nudged resignedly. I'm afraid you'll find my fingerprints inside. I got into the car, hoping to find the owner's name in the glove compartment. Frank spoke in low tones to Chief Colley as flashbulbs illuminated the area. The chief assured him that Dodds could be released on bail until a hearing, but said the figure would probably be a very high one. The Hardys promised to visit Mr. Dodd and Jack the next morning about their release. We'll contact Dad right away, Frank told the Dodds. Chet added, Jack, keep your chin up. He drove the Hardys home, where they wired their father. The following morning, the brothers drove to Bayport Police Headquarters to see Mr. Dodd and Jack. As they had feared, the bail figure was too high for the Dodds to pay at all this time. Frank, Joe exclaimed as the boys left the building. Maybe Dad will help them out with the rest. Over the telephone, Fenton Hardy supported the boys' faith in the Dodds' innocence and promised to arrange by phone for the balance of the bail payment. Shortly after noontime, the two prisoners were released. We can't thank you boys and your father enough, Mr. Dodd said, as Frank was driving them back to their farm in Mr. Hardy's car. Having your father's name behind us at the hearing tomorrow will mean a great deal. We're glad to do what we can, Joe grinned. Have you any idea who might have wanted to frame you? Frank asked as they headed north. Not really, Jack replied. But Dad and I have come up with one possibility. His name is Ray Slagle, Mr. Dodd explained. He came to the farm looking for work about a month ago, but he didn't prove dependable and after I had found him away from his chores several times, I had to dismiss him. Did you have any trouble with him after that? Joe asked. No, Mr. Dodd answered, but he threatened to get even with me. I can't tell you much about his background, but we can describe him. Dad, Jack interrupted excitedly. I think I still have that picture I took of Slagle. That might give us something to go on, Frank remarked. Actually, 
we've got two Dodd mysteries. I almost forgot, Jack gasped, remembering his uncle's expected visit that night. Mr. Dodd laughed. Frank and Joe, are you still interested? Interested, the Hardys cried in unison. We sure are. Frank turned the sedan off Shore Road onto the lane leading to the Dodd house. Mr. Dodd and Jack cordially invited the Hardys inside, where they all sat down in the attractive, pine-paneled living room. Over a large flagstone fireplace hung a framed black-and-white map of the Atlantic coast. There were several early colonial prints above the bookcases and sofa. We're ready for the story, said Frank. As you may know, Mr. Dodd began, the Dodd family, while small today, goes back several hundred years in this country. He pointed to some faded brown leather volumes along a mahogany shelf. There are records in these of centuries of Dodd's records that go back before the Revolutionary War. Unfortunately, they tell us little about the man at the root of the Pilgrim mystery. Frank and Joe leaned forward. We do know, the farmer continued, that in the year 1647, one Elias Dodd embarked from Plymouth Colony in a small skiff with his wife and three children. A good seaman with considerable knowledge of astronomy, he went in search of a horseshoe-shaped inlet that he had heard from in India. Dodd hoped to establish a settlement to which other families might come later. A horseshoe-shaped inlet, Joe exclaimed. Mr. Dodd smiled. The inlet that is today Barnett Bay. Did he reach it? Frank asked. Mr. Dodd stood up and paced the room. That is the mystery we hope to solve. You see, Elias Dodd was never heard from again. But many years later, a bottle was found washed up on the shore farther south of here. In it was a note believed to have been written by Elias before he and his family perished in a sudden violent storm. Deterioration of the paper had obliterated some of the words. In the message, Elias hastily described their last geographical position. And do you have the message here? Frank asked. Only in our heads, Jack smiled. Mr. Dodd explained. My brother Martin, who teaches astronomy at Cheston College in Greenville, has the original. You'll be able to see it when you meet him this evening. And you're hoping, Joe said, to discover whether your ancestor perished in the Bayport area. That's right, as well as determine the existence of the Pilgrim treasure. Treasure, Frank and Joe echoed. Jack's father went on. When Elias left the colony for his journey, he brought him a chest of jewels, many of which were very valuable. He hoped to use the less expensive one to barter with the Indians he might encounter. Because of the treasure, I assume the mystery must remain in confidence, Frank said. Mr. Dodd nodded. Dishonest people mustn't hear about it, Jack said. They might find the chest before we do. And there is a possibility it contains his journals, which would also be valuable. Frank and Joe stood up as Mr. Dodd glanced at his watch. Though eager to hear details of the Pilgrim clue, they realized that Jack and his father needed a chance to obtain legal advice for their hearing the next morning on the stolen car. Frank shook hands with the Dodds at the front door. We look forward to meeting Martin Dodd and seeing the old paper tonight. Jack smiled, fingering the rabbit foot's keychain, but his face seemed to cloud with the anxieties of last night's events. Thanks again, fellows, he said. Without you, we wouldn't even be free to work on the mystery. 
As it is, Mr. Dodd added, we must solve it within the next few days. His mention of a deadline puzzled the Hardys. He promised to explain later that night. Jack gave the boys a photograph of Ray Slegel. The picture revealed a burly, bald man leaning on a pitchfork before the Dodd barn. He wore a work glove with a V-shaped cuff on his left hand. The Hardys then drove out to Beach Grow, where they locked the door and began combing the sand for clues to the thief of Jerry's stolen car. Later, they heard Chet's jalopy arrive, and he joined the brothers in the search. I guessed you fellows would be here, he said. He took out a large magnifier. Thought you could use a botanical consultant. Say, do you think the evidence against the Dodds is serious? It could be, Frank admitted, kicking into a small mound of sand. They have no witnesses for their whereabouts the day that the car was stolen, but Mr. Dodd's good reputation can't be discounted. Chet leaned down with his magnifier at the top of a sand slope to inspect a plant. Suddenly he lost his balance and rolled down the incline. Chet, are you all right? Their rotund friend regained his feet. Scrubbing sand out of his hair, he helped up a glove. This might be a clue. Frank and Joe went down to look at it. It's a work glove, Chet said, pointing to the V-shaped cup. At that moment, the boys saw a car slow down on the road above them. They raced up the slope, but when they reached the highway, the car was already disappearing around the bend. The boys rushed to check their cars. Neither had been tampered with. Wonder what he was looking for, Joe remarked. Maybe the same thing that Chet found, Frank said. Joe, have you that picture of Slagle? Joe produced the photograph. Frank compared the left-handed glove Chet held to the one in the picture. The two looked identical. This may be the lead we're looking for, Frank rejoiced as they walked to their cars. Do you think this could help prove the Dodds' innocence? Chet asked. It might if they can identify it as Slagles when we see them tonight. Elated by the clue, the Hardys thanked Chet and headed home. After a light supper, they told of their proposed visits to the Dodds. Aunt Gertrude was skeptical about the bail which Mr. Hardy had put up so promptly. You're all too trustful, she said. Look up this Slagle in your father's files. Frank and Joe did so, and were disappointed when the files revealed no information on Slagle. Reckless, plain reckless, Frank and Joe Hardy, Aunt Gertrude said. Why, the Dodds may really be car thieves. But Dad doesn't think so, Auntie. Joe reminded Miss Hardy. Never you mind. You just can't rely on men who don't have a woman around the house to keep them straight. Despite her words, the boys' aunt was secretly proud of their magnanimous efforts to help the Dodds. When the telephone rang, Joe answered the call. It's Chief Colley, he whispered to Frank. Then Joe's jaw dropped as he slowly hung up the phone. He could hardly speak. The chief said the Dodds may have jumped bail. They've disappeared in their station wagon. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.